Please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We will look at verses 1 through 12 of the second chapter. And as we come to hear God's infallible word, would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we bless and praise you that you have been pleased to manifest your glory to us in the good pleasure of your grace and mercy, being pleased not to manifest your righteous wrath toward us, which we deserve because of our sin, but to manifest your free grace, demerited favor for miserable sinners such as us, for calling us, for imputing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us, for making us your children, for cutting us off from the dominion of sin, for defeating death, and for growing us in the grace and knowledge of Christ our Savior. And to that end, we pray that you would take this word and plant it in our hearts, that we would hide it there, that we may not sin against you, and that it would bear forth and yield an increase for your glory. And all this we pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. Now please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I'm sure many of you are aware, there are many ways in which gospel ministry is misunderstood and is misrepresented. R.C. Sproul speaks of a, a busy work assignment he had in seminary in which he had to evaluate contemporary conceptions of clergy in the media. And for whatever reason behind the assignment, he was charged to see how clergy were portrayed in cartoons, novels, and periodicals. He says that he discovered 
the public image of gospel ministers had deteriorated from that of respectable community leaders to inept and slovenly country bumpkins. He says that clergymen were consistently portrayed in the media as bald, overweight, sloppily dressed, inarticulate fools who veiled their inadequacies under the cloak of sanctimonious piety. And perhaps you have heard of similar caricatures of gospel ministers. Over the years, people ask me what everyone asks young people, what are you studying in school? And I tell them I want to go into gospel ministry. I'm studying to be a pastor. And there are many fun responses to that. Some legitimately good and some not so good. Sometimes the conversation just stops. Maybe there's a nod and a smile. Sometimes there's just the one word, oh. (laughs) Which also stops the conversation. (laughs) Sometimes there's, well, at least you only have to work one day a week. which has been confirmed ever since Pastor McWilliams has gone on sabbatical. (laughs) A lot of people think that when I say going into the ministry, when I say pastor, they hear priest, Roman Catholic priest. In spite of being married, they think I am a Roman Catholic priest. One guy just straight up thought I wanted to become a televangelist and launched into this tirade about how TV preachers are immoral and out out to get everyone's money, which is true, but... That's not what, what I want to do. And I think that if people are going to keep asking me what I do, I should start saying something like, I'm pursuing ordained office as an under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ to preach his word, to minister his sacraments, that I may present everyone mature in him on the last day, including you. See how that, <laughs> see how that guides the conversation. So gospel ministry is obviously going to be misunderstood. Any sort of ministry of the word, whether as an officer or not, any sort of ministry of the word is going to be misunderstood and rejected in various ways in various times because beneath that is the rejection and the misunderstanding of Christ himself. In fact, it is God's design that gospel ministry is going to be misunderstood. You think of Isaiah 6 and God's commission to Isaiah. He sees the Lord's glory in the the heavenly temple And he says, is there anyone who will will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I. And God says to him, in effect, go preach to people who won't listen and who won't repent. That was his commission. That That was the commission that Christ himself took up in his ministry. That is what gospel ministry does. The word goes out, it hardens some hearts, but it brings others to saving faith in Christ. It is the aroma of life unto life for some and the aroma of death unto death for others. Some receive the word in faith and repentance and others reject it and then they misrepresent it. And that is what we see Paul dealing with in this passage. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, Paul the Apostle and his two missionary friends minister to the church in Thessalonica. And their conduct there was being criticized after they had left. And it's key to understand the background of what was going on at this time. There were many religious and philosophical frauds going throughout the, the Mediterranean world at this time. They, they stop in from town to town, and they, they peddle their false opinions. They're, they're very flattering. They're deceptive. They're, they're greedy to live off the, off the resources of those they, they minister to. They live at their expense, and they, and they give their false opinions. And that, that is what Paul and his fellow missionaries are being accused of. 
that they're exploiting their followers and living at their expense. So someone outside the Thessalonian church is telling this young church, Paul and those other guys, they're just a bunch of religious weirdos, and they said Jesus is the Christ and you need to repent of your idols. You don't have to do all that. That's just more propaganda. They're just trying to get you to buy what they're selling, just like everybody else who comes from town to town throughout this region. So Paul is writing at this point in his first letter to the Thessalonians to say, that's not what we were doing. You know that that's false. You know that that is just slander against us. You know that we love you. You know that we have only your eternal welfare in mind. You know that we are only about the gospel. In fact, just in this paragraph, he says, you know, quite a few times, and he says the gospel of God quite a few times, indicating you know what we were about when we were with you, and you know it was all about the gospel of God. Well, at this point, you may be asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with me? Because I'm not a minister of the gospel. I only know of one minister of the gospel in the congregation at the moment. Well, there's a few answers to that about how this applies to all God's people. First of all, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So even though Paul is talking about his ministry, particular to the Thessalonians, he is appealing to his godly motives. And, and these godly motives are the concern of all believers in whatever vocation they are in. And secondly, Paul is portraying here a Philippians 2 lifestyle. Think of Philippians 2, Paul describes the the condescension of God the Son to, fellow, to, to sinners, that God the Son did not count equality with God, something to be selfishly retained. Instead, he, he selflessly served his people by becoming obedient unto death on the cross. So here, Paul, and representing Silvanus and Timothy, Paul is embodying the same kind of selfless service that was seen prior to him in the Lord Jesus. And this mind of humble service is to be the mind of all God's people because it is the mind of Christ, and it is the mind of all God's people who are in Christ. So here we have an account of a faithful shepherding ministry to Christ's body of, of Christ's ser- uh, servants. And I've entitled this sermon, The Heavenly Father with His Children, because Paul models a tender love and affection to the Thessalonians that is seen in, in God's tender affection to His children. So all the, all the good things we see in Paul, his appeal to his godly motives and, and the godly motives of his missionary friends, they are all a reflection of God's tender care for his people, for all who know him. So first of all, we see the vision, excuse me, the visit of the missionaries in the first four verses. So Paul's beginning his defense of their good character, of their righteous conduct in coming to the Thessalonians. He says there in verse one that our coming to you was not in vain. Rather, it was, it was very purposeful. We didn't come to you to get your money. We didn't come to, to deceive you, to make you believe our lies. We came to you so that you would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we came to you. It was not in vain. It was very purposeful. And by the time Paul and Silvanus and Timothy had gotten to Thessalonica, they had already had a hard time in Philippi. You see that, that brief reference there in verse 2, that they had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. Well, what is Paul referring to here? You look at the background of Paul and Silvanus in Philippi in Acts 16. Paul and Silvanus are in Philippi, and afterwards they go to Thessalonica. And in 
in Philippi, they see that there's a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. The slave girl was able to do fortune-telling, and in being able to do fortune-telling, she makes her owners a lot of money. So Luke says there that Paul becomes greatly annoyed at this situation, this slave girl with a spirit of divination making her owners money by doing fortune-telling. So Paul commands the spirit to come out of the slave girl. And obviously this doesn't make the the slave owners happy because now she can't do any more fortune-telling and she can't make them any more money. So Paul and Sylvanus get wrongly accused of disturbing the city. They've made the the, the means of, of making money for the slave owners go away, so they wrongly accuse them of disturbing the city. They said that Paul and Sylvanus were, were disturbing the city, so they're taken to the city officials. And there, the, their clothes are stripped off, and they're, they're beaten with rods, and they're thrown in prison and bound in the stocks. That's what Paul means when he says that they were shamefully treated at Philippi. That's what happened to them right before they came to Thessalonica. And what was their response to the treatment they received there? That ministry isn't worth it, we should just go home? No, they kept on going. They they persevered. They knew what they were about, they knew what their mission was, and they knew it had to be taken to the ends of the earth. Paul and Sylvanus were in prison after they were stripped and beaten in Philippi, and what they did was pray and sing hymns together even at midnight. They were praising God in their shameful treatment. So they were thrown in prison, And they had the privilege of sharing the gospel with the jailer. And in God's grace, that jailer repented and believed. So Paul and Silas are not deterred by what happened to them at Philippi. In fact, they were were made more bold. They were bold to keep declaring the gospel. You notice there in verse 2 that Paul does not say, we had boldness to declare to you the gospel. He says, we had boldness in our God. Their boldness to declare the gospel in light of all the affliction that that came their way was not human bravery. It was not their own resource. Their boldness to witness came from God alone, especially in the face of opposition. So Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, Paul and his fellow missionaries are courageous and declare the gospel freely because their boldness was in God. John Lilly says that Boldness sprang from the preacher's assurance of his own personal relation to God as a redeemed sinner and from his consciousness of a divine strength, strengthening him for the fulfillment of a divine message in the delivery of a divine, of a divine commission in the delivery of a divine message. So it was all from above. The message, the, the commission, and the execution of it all, all from above. Paul goes on to say that they declared the gospel in much conflict, literally in much agony. They had come from agony in Philippi, being beaten and thrown in jail, and they came to conflict in Thessalonica. In Philippi, they're wrongly accused, they're stripped, beaten, and thrown in jail, and they come to Thessalonica where they preach the gospel, and there are riots and civil disturbance, and they are forced to flee town in the middle of the night. That was the missionary journey. It was a tour of one stop to another, being counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ and the gospel. They went from agony to agony. And here Paul is able to argue for his right motives. He says that in verses 3 and 4. Remember our motives. Remember why we were bold to declare the good news of Christ to you. We had no wrong reasons. We had no ill will in declaring this good news. They were not deceiving anyone. They're not trying to lead anyone astray as the religious and philosophical charlatans had in the the area. They didn't want their own gain or glory in preaching the gospel. 
They're not trying to trap anyone. Their motives are pure, and Paul can set forth his pure motives only by grace. The religious and philosophical frauds were making their way through the Greek world at this time. They're peddling their ideas. They're living at the expense of their audience. But Paul is saying here, we are not like them. We are not doing that. That is not what we are about. We're not out to get you. We only have your eternal welfare in mind. We only want you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. No wrong motives, no made-up ideas and opinions. They're not like the frauds of the day, and they have to set themselves apart from them by appealing to their right motives. They have, no, they have no wrong motives. Rather, they have been approved by God for this task. They have been commissioned by God, and that is why they speak. The message has come from God, and the commission has come from God. God has set them apart for this task. He has made them his servants. They have his lasting approval, and they have been entrusted this gospel message by God to take it to the ends of the earth. And so they are consciously out to please God. This is God's message. It's been given to us by God, and that's who we're serving. We're not here to serve men. We're going to vindicate our gospel ministry, but we're not out to serve and please men. We're here to please God. God is the one who approves us for this task, not man. God has entrusted his gospel message to us. Man hasn't. We're in God's service, not man's. And God is the one who tests our hearts, not man. So obviously, there is no room for pleasing men. It's not an option. It's not even on the radar. Because God is the one who tests hearts. He's the one who tests hearts. He's the one before whose presence we live. We all live before his face. We are all in his service, in union with Christ. And we answer to him alone. And that should make us ask ourselves, whose word matters more to us? God's or man's? Think of how Jesus speaks of the issue in Matthew 10, verse 28, speaking of the power of God over man. He says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So in other words, what's the absolute worst thing that a man could do to you? Kill you? Is that it? He can just kill your body? He can't throw you into hell like God can? He can't separate you from God's love in Christ? Not even God would do that. God cannot separate us from his love in, in the Lord Jesus. Whatever man can do is nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus can do. And so we, we are here only to serve man, to, to serve God rather. God tests our hearts and we have peace with him through the Lord Jesus and we only do what is pleasing to him, not to man. So secondly, we see the behavior of the missionaries at Thessalonica. Verse 5, Paul goes on to say that we didn't flatter you. We weren't trying to, to butter you up or anything. We just gave you the, the plain, simple truth that you are in sin. You need a Savior, the Lord Jesus. So confess your sin to him, turn to him, and trust him for eternal life. They didn't have flattery. They didn't have any sort of communication that was speaking deception for selfish ends. Flattery is inherently selfish. It is it is to win someone over to exploit them. It is to live at their expense, try to get you to buy what you're selling. It is all reflective of your agenda being imposed on someone else. That's what the religious and philosophical frauds were doing at this time. And what Paul is saying, we had nothing to do with any of that. We only wanted your eternal welfare. Flattery is, of course, a perversion of communication as God made it. 
Proverbs 27, 5 and 6. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So Paul is saying, we had this kind of communication with you. We were straightforward, no flattery. We spoke the truth, and we spoke it to you in love. We had no pretext for greed, which is to say we weren't ministering to you so that we could get your stuff. We weren't hiding selfish motives behind a covering. We weren't trying to cover up seemingly, we weren't trying to have seemingly pure motives. We just had pure motives. We weren't trying to cover anything up. What you see is what you get. We're not trying to fool you. We only want you to trust in the Lord Jesus. That's why we came to you. And before God, we are telling the truth. God is witness. If you don't take my word for it, take his word for it. Before God, we are telling the truth. So no matter how we are misunderstood by men, God knows our motives. God knows that what we were doing before you was only for your eternal welfare. In verse 6, he talks about how we did not seek glory from anyone. We could have insisted upon our own honor as Christ's ministers, as his ambassadors, as those commissioned by him, set apart by him to take his gospel to the ends of the earth. We could have rightly insisted on you honoring us, but we never did that. We never came requiring that you honor us, that you, that you put us in an honorable, honorable position. We never flaunted who we were as apostles, as ministers of, of the gospel. We never flaunted that in front of you so that we could be praised. We never said anything like, do you know who I am? We just came as humble servants. We never did any of that. In fact, we did the opposite. We became humble servants, not insisting upon our own honor, which he confirms there in verse 7. We were gentle among you. You see there, the footnote there on gentle in verse 7, that some manuscripts have infants. The word is either gentle or infants. That seems like a strange option. How can, how can the one set of manuscripts have gentle and another set have infants? Well, good, good commentators and scholars disagree on this issue. I think gentle makes more sense in the context, but either way, the conclusion is the same. The point it does not change either way. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, as they minister to the Thessalonians, they don't come with underhanded plans. They come in sincerity, and they come with pure motives and the love of fellow family members, only for the welfare of the Thessalonians. We come in gentleness in sincerity, with tender affection for you. Paul's saying that we have, we have familial, tender affection for you to those who, to whom we ministered. And we are this way because God himself is this way with us. The tenderness and affection shown horizontally to the Thessalonians is a, is a matter of it being redirected, the vertical, the tenderness shown of God to his people. You think of Isaiah 42, verses 2 and 3 speaking of Jesus, the Lord's servant, that he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. So God manifests his his character as being tender and affectionate to his people. Later in Isaiah 49, God's people are complaining that, that God has forgotten them, that they are in affliction which must mean that God has forsaken them. In Isaiah 49, 15, the Lord responds, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
your walls are continually before me. And finally, Isaiah 66, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. So just from a brief survey of one book of the Bible, we see that God is gentle. God is like a nursing mother with his children. That provides the pattern for how his people treat one another. God is gentle and tender toward you, so be gentle and tender with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Which leads us to ask ourselves, how do we tend to treat our brothers and sisters in the Lord? Well, maybe you're, you're, on, you're on one extreme. You're, you're like a bulldozer. You, you mow people down. Maybe you lack compassion. Maybe you have trouble empathizing with someone, understanding how, how they're doing, how something is for them. You hear someone talk about a struggle, and you give them some hopefully biblical advice, and, the, and it's as if you say, there, I fixed it. It's not a struggle anymore. You're welcome. You have sort of a, a take two verses and call me in the morning kind of approach. You just read this set of scripture, believe it, and, and you'll, you'll be done. You're fixed. Maybe you have the opposite problem. Maybe you, you overreact to this problem. You're the other extreme. You listen very intently. You nod your head. You shed a tear. You say, there, there but you don't say anything. You don't speak any truth. You don't actually exhort or challenge. You don't say anything. You just are compassionate. Well, those are the two extremes, the two, the two problems in how we tend to relate to one another. But what we see here, what we see in God's mercy to us in Christ, his tenderness to his people, and in the example of Paul and the missionaries to the Thessalonians, we see neither of, the, of those two problems. Rather, we see a heartfelt love for sinners manifest in tenderness, and a willingness to speak even the difficult truth. And we'll see more of this later as we work through this epistle. But wisdom knows the difference. Wisdom knows when to admonish, when to encourage, and when to help. But it's always patient. It always patiently listens. It is always a manifestation of knowing God's tender love for his people and bending that outward to our brothers and sisters. He says, we were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children with you. Literally, a mother cherishing her children, keeping them warm. The image there of a, of a bird warming her eggs in her nest. The same concept we see in Ephesians 5.29 of Christ, the husband to his bride, he who nourishes and cherishes his bride. Of course, providing the pattern for all husbands to nourish and cherish their bride. So throughout Scripture, even as we see here, we see the, the, the various ways that God expresses his tender affection toward those who belong to him. He's like a father with his children. He's like a nursing mother with her infants. He's even like a hen gathering her chicks, as Jesus says to reprobate Jerusalem. I, I, would, I would love to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. So God is affectionate toward his people which Paul goes on to, to manifest, that we were affectionately desirous of you, that we, were, we strongly yearned to be with you. We only had your welfare, that you would turn from idols to the living and true God. And to that end, we were ready even to share ourselves with you, not just the gospel message. We didn't want to have a professional, you know, pulpiteering ministry where we simply preached and then left. We wanted to have a real shepherding ministry to you. We wanted to really show in all concrete ways, the tender affection of, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see here is that tender affection for God's people comes from knowing God's tender affection for you. And that is seen third and finally also in the example 
of the missionaries. Paul goes on to talk about his, his laboring in, in labor and toil. You remember our work, our labor and our toil among you. We had painful, arduous work. We, we had hardship and fatigue because we were working night and day when we were with you. It's a reference to Paul probably having another job other than gospel ministry. He had his, his preaching to the Thessalonians, and he had his tent making. He had one job to be a missionary to the church in Thessalonica, and he had another job to have gainful employment. Preaching to the gospel to the Thessalonians probably didn't have any, any gain, any monetary gain for him. So he had, he had to support himself in another way. So he was able to preach the gospel to the Thessalonians make his money on the side to support himself, and so he wasn't able to be a burden to the Thessalonians. And so the charge against him that he was just living to exploit them falls to the ground. He had his own job. He worked night and day so as not to be a burden to them. And frankly, I do not know how this is possible, how to be in gospel ministry and have another job. Just the thought of doing that makes me tired. It's like Led Zeppelin said in the 70s, that working from 7 to 11 every night really makes life a drag. But apparently, Paul didn't, didn't feel that way. Preaching the gospel for Paul was not gainful employment. He had, he had to get his, his money another way. But he was called to preach the gospel, even though it wasn't gainful in that way. He was eager to do so because he desired to be pleasing to his master. He was not out to please the Thessalonians even, only to please his master. So whatever he had to do to get the gospel out, even working night and day, he was willing to do so. He goes on to, to talk about his, his holy character. We were holy, righteous, and blameless. Okay, there's, there's no, there's no uh, wrong opinion that could stick. We only had good motives in coming to you. We executed our duties to God and to you, and we were faithful. There's, there's nothing that, that these people who have false opinions can say that would stick. We were like a father with his children, because, of course, God is a father to his children. Psalm 103.13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Larger Catechism 125 talks about the, the duties of parents taking all these things together to, to codify tenderness in, in the relationship of parents to their children. It speaks of the duties of parents to express love and tenderness to their children and to cultivate in their children a greater willingness and cheerfulness in performing their duties. So in other words, parents, bosses, anyone in, in charge, you who have inferiors to take care of, to, to lead, don't beat down those who are in your charge. Be tender toward them. Help them love what God calls them to do. Don't vex them. Be tender toward them. So we had fatherly love when we were with you. We, we told you what you had to do, and we always did it in love. We exhorted you, turn from these idols, turn to the true and living God. And then he comes to the grand finale in verse 12. All leading up to this, we told you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Walk worthily of God, walk suitably to him. Walk suitably to him calling you into his own kingdom and glory. Conduct your life as a member of God's heavenly kingdom. Don't act in any other way. God calls us into his kingdom. He effectually calls us. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. He renews our wills and, per and persuades and enables us 
to embrace Jesus Christ. God calls his elect. He says, come to me, and we come. He creates what he commands. Just as he, he created light out of darkness by speaking, he says, come to his elect, and they come. He creates what he commands. He calls us into his own kingdom. He calls us into the heavenly kingdom, something that God's people presently enjoy in their union with the Lord Jesus. Not just a, a future reality to come in the, in the fullness when, when Christ returns. It is a present reality to be in God's kingdom. It is a present reality and a future hope. And here Paul is talking about that present reality, the present state of believers to be in God's kingdom where he calls you. Being in the state of blessedness where God and man together dwell in the fellowship of the covenant. It harkens back to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, that if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And of course, he cast out demons, bringing in his reign in the church. The kingdom of God has already come, and the future glory has manifested itself in the present, where God dwells with man in the heavenly kingdom here. So the kingdom has come, but it will come in all of its fullness and glory when the king returns. The kingdom is invisible now, and it is visible and public in the age to come. He calls us into his kingdom. He calls us into his own glory, calling us to reflect his own gl glory, to bear his image, to be of, of his, to be of one mind with him, to be like his character. Matthew Henry puts it well when he says the gospel calls us into the kingdom and state of grace here and unto the kingdom and state of glory hereafter, to heaven and happiness as our end and to holiness as the way to that end. God has made us his own, calling us into his own kingdom and glory. And so the exhortation to holiness is founded upon the great privilege of God's grace. So God has brought you into his, into his kingdom. He will bring his kingdom in fullness when Christ returns. You were in darkness, and now you've been brought into his marvelous light. He calls you. He makes you his own. So walk worthily of what he has made you. Be as God made you. You are a citizen of his kingdom, so live as such, one who reflects his glory. All this is brought together well in, a, in an old story about a wealthy Englishman and his relationship to the slave trade. There was a wealthy Englishman who went to California in the 1850s to enrich himself during the gold rush. And he had much success and decided to go back home to England. And on his way back, he had to stop in New Orleans. And as all tourists did at that time, he visited the infamous slave trading block. So he approached the place where slaves were sold for cash. And he sees there on the block a young, beautiful African woman standing there. And off to the side, he hears... He overhears two men trying to outbid each other for this young woman, and they're talking about all that they would do to her if they could buy her. So the Englishman is, is moved by the, the sure plight of this young African woman. So he joins in the bidding for the slave girl, and he offers twice the asking price. And the auctioneer was amazed. He said that no one has ever offered this much for a slave. So of course, his offer is accepted. He steps forward to, to get the slave girl, and he helps her down from the, from the slave block, down to his level, and then she spits in his face. He wipes his face, and he leads her to a building in, in another part of town. Takes her to a building and fills out some forms there, 
but she, she doesn't understand what's going on. So the Englishman hands the slave girl her release papers. And he said, there, now you are a free woman. And then she spits in his face again. So the Englishman wipes his face and he says, don't you understand what I'm doing? You are free to go. You are free. You are no longer a slave. Then it finally sinks in and she stares at him in disbelief. And then she falls at his feet and weeps. And finally she, she looks up at him and says, sir, is it, is it really true that you paid more than anyone has ever paid to purchase me as a slave only to set me free? And he says, yes. And, and she weeps some more. And finally she's able to speak. Sir, I only have one request. Can I be your slave forever? So of course the slave girl misunderstood the good news that she was receiving. She was hostile to this Englishman who was who was setting her free. She misunderstood the, the, this Englishman's ministry, if you will. So the ministry of the gospel is always going to be challenged. It's always going to be misrepresented until Christ returns. And it is misrepresented, at least partly, because it is misunderstood. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the message that God effectually calls his people into his own kingdom and glory. That in Christ we are freed from bondage to sin, that we are freed from the sting of death, that we are raised in Christ, that he makes us willing and able to, to live for him, to be his willing servants. And if we know how bad the bad news is, then the good news is exceedingly good. And we are moved to desire to walk in his steps, to live in obedience to him. And in the knowledge of what Christ has done for his people, we have reason, we have impetus to walk in fellowship with him in obedience to his revealed will. And Calvin well said, in conclusion, that it now remains that we answer God's call, that is, that we show ourselves to be such children to him as he is a father to us. Amen, and may God add his blessing to the preaching of his word.